0: We're going to get this started. What the hell is happening in Colombia?
1: Oh, man. Uh, The country is under a general strike, which has had pretty good levels of adhesion, it appears, uh, for about 12 days now, I think. And um, a lot of different things are going on. Um, I think for an American audience, what is most interesting is that it, uh, it shows a potential view of the future for our country. Um, the current president, Ivan Duque, is the follower of a politician who is a former president um, who still enjoys a huge following in Colombia, Álvaro Uribe. So Álvaro Uribe was president um, from 2002 um, and served uh, two terms. Um, Colombia used to not have reelection of presidents. And Uribe managed to have the Constitution changed while he was in power the first time, so he won re-election, and um, I think it's a four-year term, so from 2002 to 2006, and was re-elected until 2012. So um, Uribe has retained a grip on the center-right and far-right in Colombia, and the the current president, Iván Duque, belongs to his party. Uribe also has a, a good presence in the Senate, uh, in, the, in, the, in the legislature, uh, with a party of his own creation. So I think what this shows is the potential future for the United States, uh, assuming that former President Trump survives for another 20 years. So no longer in power, no longer occupying a position of power constitutionally, but still exercising tremendous influence. You know, We see the uh, Republican Party for now you know, with the battle over Lynn Cheney's leadership role in Congress, um, it seems that the party has very little in the way of ideology or a program uh, and is, seems to be uh, struggling to orient itself strictly in terms of how loyal you are, how supportive you are to former President Trump. And those who Trump points at, uh, like in Mexico, they say the dedazo, el dedo, you know, the dedazo of Trump, whoever he anoints. Is uh, who is groomed for the highest positions in the Republican Party. So Uribe has that kind of power. He's had that power since uh, leaving the presidency in 2012. So the successor of President Uribe in 2012 was his former defense secretary, Juan Manuel Santos. Um, And Uribe expected Santos to retain uh, Uribe's policies with the most important policy issue of the time, which was the ongoing civil war against mobilized Marxist guerrillas in the jungle. So when Uribe was elected in 2002, there were 17,000 uniformed members of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the oldest guerrilla movement in the Western Hemisphere that had been in the field since 1964 under that name and under other names before 1964, uh, going all the way back to 1948. So the longest running continuous civil war in the Western Hemisphere, and Uribe crushed the guerrillas, um, practically destroyed them, and Santos uh, was elected with a platform of general policy continuity with Uribe, but Santos pivoted during his presidency to uh, seeking a negotiated peace, which was something that Uribe never wanted. Uribe wanted to crush the rebels militarily, and Santos seeing the tremendous damage that the war ha, it has been causing to the country tremendous ecological damage to the amazon rainforest and everything uh, santos negotiated a ceasefire and a demobilization similarly to what was done in central america in the 80s and has been done in you know malaysia and many other places around the world a negotiated peace and the guerrillas voluntarily gave up their arms went into um, demobilization camps uh, supervised by the united nations and um, so, Santos delivered the peace that ended the civil war. Um, Uribe, this this is the story of a protege departing from the protector, and um, so Uribe, um, not exactly went to war. You don't want to use metaphorical language to describe a country where there has been actual war, but Uribe has had a feud with Santos ever since then. Um, Uribe, when the when the ceasefire was negotiated, when the peace treaty was negotiated, Santos put the treaty to a referendum in Colombia. This was news around the world, you know, a referendum in Colombia to seal the peace uh, with the guerrillas. Uribe campaigned against the negotiated peace. So uh, the population wound up voting. The majority of the voters voted against the peace agreement. Uh, Santos subsequently Despite his failure to secure a majority of the public in the referendum, Santos still passed the peace legislation through Congress. So um, going over the head of Uribe, essentially, uh, concluded the peace deal, demobilized the guerrillas. Duque is Santos's successor. And Duque has been described in the Colombian press as having the soul of a bureaucrat. So although he's the president, he does not view his boss, quote-unquote, as the voters or the people. Saint, uh, Duque is very clear that his boss is Alvaro Uribe. So you have a situation very similar to a, – a, a, you have a right-wing movement, a far-right movement in Colombia, which is very powerful, similar to the movement behind Bolsonaro in Brazil, similar to the movement behind Marine Le Pen in France. Extreme right-wing, and um, – you know. Repudiating the ceasefire, you know, um, going back on a lot of the peace arrangements that were part of the deal and, uh, you know, aggressively pursuing foreign investment and uh, pursuing a kind of Bolsonaro-like, you know, Trump-like you know, tax cuts for the wealthy and so on. And that's basically the context in which this current tax reform arose earlier this year and, um, you know, coming on top of COVID. Uh, the situation was ripe for, you know, massive, you know, Duque has lost all uh, political credibility. He is viewed as Alvar Uribe's puppet, and uh, Duque has managed to burn up a lot of the credibility or goodwill that Uribe still enjoyed. He's discredited his movement. Um, he does not have any kind of communication skills. There's no policy clarity. It's it's kind of a zigzagging kind of confusion Um can't even really think of a of a of a of a good thing to compare it to. Um, it's it's been wild policy zigzags, and he's hung his economy minister out to dry. The the economy minister who proposed the tax reform has resigned, and the protesters are still in the streets. Um, it's sort of like Black Lives Matter. I mean, just police repression breeding more protests. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's really stunning to me. I never would have expected this to happen. Never could have predicted it.
0: Oh, this is why we're friends, Michael. So uh, do you remember the Arab Spring of twenty 20- Yeah, man. Of 2010? Do you remember how it started?
1: Yeah, the, there was a street vendor in um, Tunisia who um, committed suicide because of, um, I think it was a tax protest, essentially. So he set himself on fire, and um, the protest movement in his memory was what kicked that off. Am I right?
0: You're right. The reason there was a the reason he killed himself is because he could no longer afford to feed his family because in Tunisia they raised the levy, la leva, which is what it's called in Colombia, the levy, charge against basic household goods. Whenever the levy or the tax on basic consumption exceeds 40%, you will have protests, you will have revolutions and democracies will be overthrown. It has happened in the past, it will happen again. And it's happening now. It happened in Tunisia. It happened in Egypt. Uh, it happened in Syria, which led to the protracted civil, uh, Syrian uh, civil war. But you cannot tax a population where suddenly forty percent of their income, whether official or unofficial income, you know, informal income, is used for basic consumption and that was the the straw that broke the camel's back in Colombia where if you just look at it from the point of view of economics the average Colombian makes about four hundred and thirty two dollars a month okay in the informal economy four hundred and thirty two dollars a month not a week a month Nineteen percent of that was going to be taxed. Okay, how are you supposed to live with the remaining? You know, good God, man, it's not even—it's not even three hundred dollars. It's impossible. It's impossible. And then—and then that's just when it broke. Everything broke out. The consumption of eggs. The consumption of meat. Oh, they weren't going to touch coffee because uh, coffee is, you know, a national imperative and a source of pride in Colombia, but can't live on coffee alone and every person the what they call las personas naturales which is their modest term for the underclass who's out in the streets in cali in Barranquilla, in bogotá that the the whole country essentially fell apart in two and a half weeks and if you're out protesting during a pandemic, the phrase in Spanish, Este este gobierno es más peligroso que la pandemia. This government is more dangerous than the pandemic. Why? Because in Spanish, con el virus puedo morir. I could die from the virus. Pero con este gobierno no puedo vivir. But with this government, I can't live. So there's no going back to this. And the real tragedy is that Colombia was ascending Colombia was kind of the rock of stability in South America. When you have, you know, Venezuela, which has been in a protracted uh, recession for 11 years now, for more than a decade. And then Brazil just, just can't get its act together. Brazil, a country of vast national resources, just cannot get its act together. And then COVID happened and it just made the situation even worse. And then you have under, underperforming economies in Ecuador, in Peru, in Chile, which in a sense exists just to export food into the United States. If you go to a Whole Foods, I mean, most of the fresh produce there that's out of season comes from Chile. And Argentina has kind of become the, um, the sick man of South America. You know, I think no one talks about Argentina in the present tense, they all just talk about it in the past tense of how good it used to be. You know, aside from, you know, modern day references to, you know, Lionel Messi and, you know, whatever new soccer stories emerging from the country. And Colombia was it. Colombia was it for a very, very long time and now it all fell apart. Why? Because alvaro Uribe and his loyalty to the old regime, and this dynamic plays itself out in Western democracies all the time, and it's playing itself out here in the United States as well. When you don't have a political philosophy or a political platform, all you have left is some loyalty to the old regime. And the old regime in the United States is Donald Trump for the conservatives and the GOP. In Colombia, the only political platform they have is around the strongman of Uribe who crushed the FARC because the the political factions in Colombia are similar to the political factions in Spain and in Mexico. It's like they're so diverse, they're so far apart on every issue. The only thing they can actually agree on is that we don't like Duque and we want Duque out. Now, the reason we're having the podcast is what comes next. You know, Obviously, Duque has lost his mandate to govern in Colombia and the protests are going to continue in this manifestation of street power until one of two things happen. Either the military removes uh, Duque in a military coup or there are new elections and they just throw out the, the entire parliament and Duque just becomes a puppet president.
1: So I don't agree with everything that you said just now. Um, Definitely there is extreme political polarization in Colombia, Um, and Álvaro Uribe remains a very popular uh, figure because of his military success against the FARC. Um, Colombia in 2001 was a a very unstable place um, on the verge of becoming a failed state. So um, Uribe um, is credited broadly by the public with having uh, reversed that situation. Colombia has been a rock of stability for about 100 years financially. So it's one of the few Latin American countries that has never defaulted on its foreign debt. A lot of writers will say that Colombia is the oldest democracy in South America. Um, I really don't think that's actually true the um the violence in colombia the modern era of violence dates from 1948 there was a populist political candidate named jorge eliezer gaitan who was assassinated during presidential campaign um, gaitan probably would have won the presidency that year uh, massively popular um, politician you know extensive track record uh, very eloquent at a time when colombians valued political oratory and eloquence and um, would have, you know, been kind of a, you know, Latin America is always kind of a follower of trends in North America. And so um, following on the heels of FDR, the New Deal up here, um, you would have seen a lot of um, sort of modernization happening in Colombia. Um, Gaetan was explicitly campaigning on things like land reform, uh, and, and any Mexican, any Mexican American appreciates the value of land reform and how important it was to the Mexican Revolution. So um, when Gaitan was assassinated, it led to three days of riots in Bogotá, uh, which are called the Bogotazo. And um, coincidentally, in Bogotá at that time, there had been a uh, meeting of an organization called the Latin American Youth Congress. And so you had student student politicians from all over Latin America gathered in Bogota for this Pan-American conference, one of whom was a young Fidel Castro, and um, uh, Colombia has had a, a history of violence. If you, if you know your Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the novel 100 Years of Solitude is set with the background of the War of a Thousand Days, which took place from uh, 1900 to 1902, about that time. Um, So periodically, the two political parties, it's a duopoly there, just like here. Periodically, the liberals and conservatives would go to war with each other. And the war started out in forty-eight like that and just metastasized and um, led to the peasant villages in the countryside organizing themselves for self-defense, trying to keep the liberals and conservatives out and those peasant self-defense brigades morphed into what were the FARC. So, at that time, there was a military coup. So, people who talk about two hundred years of Colombian democracy ignore the fact that Gustavo Rojas Pinilla, a general in the army, forcibly took the presidency and held the presidency for several years um, in the nineteen fifties, and attempted to create a political movement to support himself like a political party Um, and so campaigned on a combination of kind of catholic authoritarianism and economic modernization and um, democracy formal democracy with elections only came back in 1958 so 1948 was the bogotazo and gaitan's assassination i think 51 was rojas pinilla's coup and then uh, Rojas Pinilla surrendered the presidency in 58. So real modern Colombian do- do- democracy doesn't go back, doesn't have an unbroken history past the 1950s. The one thing that you can say for foreign investors, what they care about is that the country has never defaulted on its foreign debt. The, co- the country is inextricably tied to the United States. So the currency is not exactly pegged, but the, the central bank is always under pressure to uh, stabilize the exchange rate. So unlike most countries, most country central banks are trying to stabilize inflation. Columbia's, oh, and they're trying to stabilize inflation and maximize employment. Columbia Central Bank has to do three things, stabilize inflation, maximize employment, and stabilize the exchange rate. Which is, um, which
0: is a, uh, a, a upper division course at most University of California uh, schools, <laughs> especially uh, uh, Berkeley and UCLA. Um, what I find fascinating is that the politics of Colombia in large part mirror the politics of Iran, where you had a disputed, um, you know, uh, presidential election or par- parliamentary election and a person was deposed from power, uh, either through, uh, a CIA, you know, uh, MI5, you know, in Berglio, which was the Mossadegh, you know, um, in Berglio, in iran and the suez crisis in egypt and then you have you know the fall of algiers in 1954. none of these things happened because in accident they happened during the ascendancy of the boomers you know as they gain political purchase you know the the largest X-ers, post-war... The
1: boomers only started getting born in 1945. Yeah, so but, boomers were not but this, was old, yeah. this was a
0: post-war phenomenon. Sure, this sure. was a post-war phenomenon. This was definitely a post-war phenomenon that all happened at the same time. If you look I mean, at... You
1: and I are both good Gen Xers, so we can talk about how bad the boomers are all day long. But we're, we're, we we're good. Boomers for we're good. Downfall.
0: It, Neil Strauss would define us as the nomad generation that cleans up after, you know, uh, the, the, the boomers. But... If you look at world politics between 1954 and 1961 there was a lot of instability chaos and regime change uh, during that er- era and um, Guatemala, Colombia, Egypt, Iran we're st- France France lost Algeria we're still dealing with the consequences of that the Vietnam War you know where where France was literally defeated by, a, a group of armed peasants in a protracted guerrilla war. And because of the domino theory, suddenly the United States was in, embroiled in the Vietnam War as well that lasted nine years. I'm not saying that, you know, the situation in Colombia will lead to a, a newly protracted civil war. But the only way out, the only way to you know end the chaos in the street, because the, the chaos in the street isn't good for business. You know, there's right now there are road closures and uh, the the trucks aren't getting into the city, so there's a run on cash at the banks. You know, there are there are lines that you can see people emptying out ATM machines. You know, uh, basic staples like bread, flour, coffee. Oh my God, there's not enough coffee in Bogota now. People are going to lose it. And there's an incredible refugee population that's living in Colombia that is a cash economy that needs that cash because they're sending that cash back home to Brazil and Venezuela. So it's um, that's why we're dedicating a podcast to what the hell is happening in Colombia and why it matters. And the reason it matters is because they're trying to do three things at once. No one's been able to do three things at once except the United States because the United States has a reserve currency. So this is the magic. This is the magic of international mo- monetary policy. If your currency is so valuable that other countries use it to stabilize their own inflation, and there's two ways you can deal with inflation and full employment at the same time. You can either print more money, which makes your money absolutely worthless, so everyone ends up using the reserve currency anyway, which is what's happening in the rest of Latin America. Or you can peg your money on the exchange rate to the dollar, which gives you some type of stability, but gives you no flexibility in terms of raising taxes or borrowing money from the IMF. And now the third part. And the third part is your upper divisional economics course that we are about to give you here for free on the Respublica podcast. What is the third thing, Michael, that they're trying to I do? I You told me, George. third thing that they're trying to do they're trying to borrow money from the imf at the same time and the only way you can do that is you got to raise taxes without uh, generating inflation With that means you can't overprint your own domestic currency and you have to sustain full employment and full benefits of the social safety net at the same time
1: well you know the thing is that very frequently when the imf lends a country money it comes with extensive conditions that have to do with cutting government expenditure, in order to stabilize the currency, in order to stabilize the uh, current accounts, and so on. Um, that's what's led to so many protests. You know, for example, in Argentina in 2002, I think they had three presidents and the, they had four presidents in the space of three years or something like that, um, because the IMF loans that stabilized the country prevented the national default. Um, required them to dramatically cut back on the social safety net. Um, And that's happened many times around the world.
0: I mean, the chickens are all coming home to roost as far as international monetary policy are concerned because even the United States can't control inflation right now. I mean, we're going through an inflationary period right now. Uh, and The reason being is because the United States needs to begin reinvesting in its own domestic economy. That means it's pulling back the amount of dollars that it has in circulation throughout the world. Well, you can't be the international reserve currency and spend money domestically, but it had to spend money domestically to keep the economy afloat. So the reason that housing is so overvalued, the reason the stock market is so overperforming is because we're in what is... Tanamount to an inflationary period where there's no other place for the money to go. The money can't the American dollar can't go anywhere else. Because even China is starting to spend its US treasuries. And they're spending their US treasuries by investing it in the third world. Because they're holding so many US treasuries right now that if they don't spend it, they're going to suffer through an inflationary period as well.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I understand them, the causation mechanism that you're thinking about here. Um, if, the, if the Chinese government holds a lot of American treasury bonds, um, that holding by itself doesn't exert inflationary pressure on the country. No, it exerts... Exi- the, it, 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 it's correct that this Chinese are investing a lot around the world with the Belt and Road Initiative in Asia and in uh, various investments in africa and latin america that's certainly true but i don't think that they're doing that in order to avoid the inflationary pressure that would magically be exerted by them holding a bunch of u.s treasuries no
0: if they're holding if they're holding it increases the value of u.s treasuries and increasing the value of u.s treasuries no longer allows them to keep a uh, a a favorable trade deficit, where they sell us two billion dollars in finished Chinese goods, and we only give them, uh, and they only purchase from us like two hundred billion dollars in finished uh, American goods. So the they need to keep this imbalance of trade in order to keep inflation very low in China.
1: No, so if the Chinese hold a large amount of American bonds. That's true, mm-hmm. but you're saying that they need to avoid. The the those those are assets. Those are assets. Those are assets. And if we appreciating. Yeah, those are assets Um,
0: appreciating. If we sell them, what you
1: what you're saying is not logical because what you're saying is that in by definition, preventing the appreciation of an asset is the same thing as encouraging its depreciation. But if you are the holder of a bunch of American bonds, why would you take actions that would devalue? That would cause those assets to depreciate because it's not in your interest no
0: it is it is in their interest because as they become a consumer economy as they become a consumer economy and begin to purchase more luxury goods they now will have a balance of trade that is not no longer in their favor right now they benefit from having a very large trade deficit with the united states that we buy more from them than they buy from us but as you get closer to parity as they become a consumer economy and a luxury economy, guess what? There's no longer scarcity for these goods in China. And without the scarcity of goods in China, the the basket of household goods increases. As the basket of household goods increases, the demand for domestic wages to keep up with the, uh, the total basket of goods increases as well. And then you'll have inflation in China. So China- you
1: have a basket of goods. Hmm. and you're saying that that basket was formerly scarce Yes. and it now is not. So in other words, what you're saying is you have an increase of supply. An increase of supply, all other things being equal, would lead to a decrease in price.
0: It would It would lead to a decrease in, in price because there's more supply and demand is steady. However, we're talking about finished luxury goods. So like the, the biking shirt you're wearing with all the Chinese Moffats on it, all right? Where was it made? in China? Okay, but where does it hold its value?
1: I mean it had value for me when I bought it. Yeah, it had value for, value for you
0: when you Chinese bought it in the Chinese in, in the, yes in the United States, although it was produced in China, it gained value in the United States. It's going to be repurchased in China at the American price. It's not going to be purchased in China. China is only the site no, of manufacturing. So the, the
1: maker, the exporter, paid for its fabrication in China. Yes, and then earned an export price. Yes, when I paid for it.
0: Yes, and then the, that was profit. That but it's going them. back. But it's like Nike's are made in China, okay? Then they're brought over to the United States. Then they're resold to China as an American good. You don't buy you don't buy Nike's out of the back door of the Chinese plant that makes them. You buy them in the mall.
1: But how is that reselling them to China?
0: Because now they're an American good that's being sent
1: back. You Everybody the used shoes are being sent back. No,
0: brand new shoes. The shoes that go, the, the shoes that are made in, you know, um, some South China factory, are then put on a boat and they come into the port of Long Beach. The port of Long Beach, the import export broker then figures out, all right, I can sell this many shoes in U.S. retail stores, then. The remaining 13% are divided up amongst, you know, Canada, Latin America, and China. And they're put back on a boat and sent back to China.
1: But just the 13%. The just, the 13,
0: yeah, just the 13%. Yeah, but he's, he's still making his American price on that 13%. He's not selling it as a Chinese item. He's selling it as a U.S. item. Air Jordans so, come into the country. Right now, it's just a red shoe made in China. The minute it lands in the United States, it's magically... Infused with Americanness, and it suddenly becomes a, a, a scarce resource. I'm not sure, if I buy that, and it's sent I... back. iPhones, iPhones work the same way. iPhones are made in China, okay, and but they're sold so at American.
1: Chinese, a, so
0: they're sold in American prices.
1: Just by Chinese consumers in China
0: are sold are, at American. And shipped
1: back to China from America,
0: and they're sold at American prices.
1: I don't know. I, this is outside of my expertise because yeah, I have a very limited amount of expertise about Latin America and I have next to no expertise about Well,
0: the, the expertise about Ameri- Latin America is, is similar to what's happening in China. China, as their economy com- becomes more sophisticated, they now have the luxury of suffering from inflation. I mean, poor countries never suffer from inflation unless there's a complete mismanagement by the government. You know, and... Colombia is a good example of there are certain sectors of the economy that aren't being taxed. There are certain sectors of the economy that are not paying their fair share. And that's why, you know, los residentes or los ciudadanos naturales, you know, the underclass, is being so burdened with this 19% levy against basic household goods because there's an inadequate... um, distribution of taxes in Colombia.
1: So, or in other words, it is the natural result of uh, succession successive right-wing governments that have successfully implemented their policies. So what you have now, after 20 years of right-wing governments, is a tax base that is a regressive tax base.
0: Yeah, it's a regressive tax base. It is a, indefinitely... what indefinitely right
1: wing wants all over the world.
0: Well, um, no. I mean, there's, there's, there. You, everyone pays taxes. I mean, the, the reality is everyone pays taxes. It depends, is like how much tax you pay. Like here in the United right. States, it's an absolute travesty that I, as a 46 year old man, pay more taxes than the entire Amazon Corporation. Yep. You know, that's right. that's well, completely that's the right-wing likes. That's completely unjust. That's completely unjust. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And we're getting very close to, you know, something like that happening here in the United States. I mean, the thing you have to watch out for is that as soon as people making under $32,000 a year are faced with allocating 40% of their income just for basic needs and services, then you'll have, you know, violence in the streets.
1: Well, I think the the empirical reality of life for a long time in this country has been that poor people and the working class are not able to save. They're obligated to spend the, the vast majority and sometimes even more than a hundred percent of their income on basic survival. That's one of the reasons why credit card debt has grown so great. And we have a bubble in auto loans uh, because in order to just survive, people have had to spend beyond their means for years and years. So, um, you know, the propensity to spend versus save has always been highest among the working class as compared to the middle class and the, the wealthy in this country. That's one of the reasons why sales taxes are regressive, because sales taxes touch much closer to 100% of a working class person's income. If you're getting by on $40,000 a year, you're probably not saving anything. And so the, in addition to your income tax, you have to of your monthly expenditures so much of that is touched by sales tax compared to someone who is getting by on 120 grand or 200 grand a year that person is able to save so as a percentage of their annual income less of it is being touched by sales taxes compared to that person who's getting by on 40 god forbid raising a family on 40 grand a year
0: no absolutely no i mean it's um and that's why we had so much stimulus, you know, during COVID in the United States.
1: Fascinating this experiment in, in uh, demand side stimulus.
0: Well, demand side yeah. stimulus was absolutely necessary to keep the float going. I mean, yeah. people were floating, and now this is an entirely other podcast. So here's a preview of episode 132: uh, Is should extended unemployment benefits be cut or not? Because the meme right now on twitter is like sorry we're closed nobody wants to work because they'd rather make 16 dollars an hour in unemployment than whatever they're paying at the chipotle or at you know the burger king and outside of california i think the going rate is 1325 if you're working in fast food you know at a chipotle or at a burger king and the extended unemployment benefits for covid now equal almost 16 dollars an hour. There were only 236,000 jobs, you know, filled last month out of the 4 million jobs available. And ultimately, Michael, I would invite you back next week and we talk about, you know, the 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 great question of our time is, you know, uh, shall we restructure unemployment so that people go back to work, or should we keep unemployment as it is? As you know, the first direct stimulus program for the poor.
1: Yeah, I don't know, man. This, well, here's the question: This is very this quickly is, that conversation gets to first principles. It's about what kind of society you want to live in. No, no, no. It it, be, it becomes a, a question. It becomes a battle of untestable hypotheses.
0: No, it's not because this is George. I'm a conservative. And I think extended unemployment is actually a good thing because now businesses have to compete for the remaining workers and offer benefit programs to get them to come back to work, and they have to improve the conditions. You've you've created scarcity in the employment market. I don't see anything wrong with that.
1: I guess we be, are living in a brave new world.
0: I just like maybe old age has gotten the better of me but I don't I, see
1: anything wrong with it. So I, I, I think that uh I think that Trump derangement syndrome is not something that only happens to Democrats.
0: No, this I'm not being der- I'm not I'm not being deranged but it's uh, it's, it's kind of like uh, what Andrew Yang and
1: uh, what was it called? It's universal it, basic income.
0: Yeah, universal basic income. Yeah, Yang Gang. You know, uh 2021, you know, get on board. And I mean, here in Los Angeles, you know, it ain't bad, you know? I mean, it ain't bad living in Los Angeles right now. I mean, what's it like up there right now?
1: I don't know what you mean by it ain't bad.
0: It's like, Um, people have money. People have money. People are spending money. I mean, no one's, like, like down and out, you know, doing...
1: I don't know, man. I mean, what's the headcount on Skid Row lately?
0: Well... This is Skid Row is the homeless population in Los Angeles has ballooned because it's a magnet. We're one of the few parts of the country that actually has uh, services and programs for homeless people.
1: Weather. Yeah. I mean, I've seen videos on Reddit, the Los Angeles subreddit um, of this enormous, gigantic kind of Hooverville on Venice Beach by the No, program.
0: yeah, Hoover yeah, Hooverville in uh, Hooverville's a reference to the Great Depression and all of these um, uh, vagabond encampments that came about during the depression that were named after President Hoover. But yeah, Venice is real. Venice is no longer Venice. I mean, Downtown LA is no longer Downtown LA. It it's been given over, you know, to the wolves. And the the wolves being a Skid Row now encompasses all of Downtown Los Angeles. And
1: part, so I partly think that a little bit troubles the notion of it ain't bad in LA right now.
0: Well, I mean, the city of LA, I think it's one of the reasons why the mayor is going to dip out and become the ambassador to India. Who's in, who India, the country's now facing a uh, cataclysmic wave of COVID infections, is a much better place than you know the rising homeless population of Los Angeles. Because if he wants to become a player in national politics, he has to cleanse himself. From you know being the mayor of Los Angeles, I mean, no, no national political leader has really ever emerged out of Los Angeles, and the Since reason Richard Nixon, no Nixon was never mayor. Nixon no, did, he wasn't
1: mayor, but he's from Whittier.
0: Yeah, he's from Whittier, California, but I mean, at least he was smart enough never to get involved in like LA politics. You know, it's okay. like it'll it'll crush you. I mean, if you want to get far in L.A. politics, you got to get into real estate or you got to go into entertainment. You don't go into, like, city government. You know, that's – fight me. I'm, I'm right. Um, anyway, Michael, thank you for being on the podcast. Hopefully, uh, Colombia will improve. Um, hopefully, now that the military is involved, uh, it will rein in the violence from the police.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. I don't know. Um, the Colombian military is highly professionalized but then again, so is the military of France. And I don't know if you saw the news about the um, the open letter sent by of uh, several retired generals in France that has been co-signed by several hundred active-duty officers um, openly opposing Macron's policies. Um, but, you know, highly professional military service um, openly flirting with intervention in national politics in France. So the Colombian military, highly professional as well. And um, I am not sure what is, I'm not sure what's going to happen in Colombia. The uh, country has a variety of um, police forces besides the national police. There's this anti-terrorist force, the ESMA, um, and there are some other kind of specialists. Uh, groups as well that are not military, that are under the Ministry of the Interior, I think. Uh, And it's a little bit of a question of, you know, at night you see these videos getting posted on Twitter of uniformed individuals with, you know, heavy military vehicles rolling through neighborhoods and shooting at apartment buildings and uh, gassing, you know, sending gas canisters down streets. It's not clear who's doing that. Um, And it's not really clear what the agenda is. I think it's Duque overreacting because his boss, Álvaro Uribe, has told him to quell the situation. So they're attempting to use massive force to quell the protests. And I think that what what we learned from Chile is that when people have nothing to lose, they stop being afraid of the Leviathan, You know, the state monopoly on the use of force. So um, it's possible that the protests could go on. It's all about whether or not the political opposition can get its act together and unify around a, a specific program and demand specific concrete change. That happened in Chile. That's why there is going to be a rewrite of the constitution in Chile now. Um, I don't know whether that can happen in Colombia, but um, the overwhelming... I, I guess the, the, I, my point is the military is not yet known to be actively involved Um, And I'm not sure where the instincts of the institution lie. There's probably reluctance to following in the footsteps of the army of Brazil. Um, You know, the Brazilian army is 100% behind Bolsonaro. There are multiple active-duty generals in Bolsonaro's government. I don't know if... Because Colombia subscribes to that mythology of being an old democracy. So um, Duque is definitely running out of... um, running out of time. Um, But yeah, people who are aficionados of politics, keep your eyes on Colombia because um, definitely this is going to, it's history in the making. People are going to write PhD theses about this.
0: The other reason Colombia is very important, it it could just be the, it could just be the preview of a very interesting summer. Because you're right about France and The thing about France, if France loses... What the generals literally wrote was, we are perilously close to losing our identity as France with the Macron government. And uh, he made a speech over the weekend praising the positive aspects of Napoleon Bonaparte as kind of an olive branch to uh, the right of center forces in france but there's no let's, let's be under no illusion that macron will ever you know uh, move to right of center he's definitely a left of center you know a political well, I also figure know
1: that he'll be taken seriously i don't know if anybody remembers when uh what's his name uh, al gore when he was running for president in 2000 how he uh, tried to position himself as a family values guy and as he tried to position himself as a defender of the working class. And so he giving these real kind of um, these real tough speeches, you know, trying to cultivate a tone of voice like he was some sort of evangelical preacher. I'm going to fight for your family. That was the soundbite I remember. And nobody took him seriously. And, you know, American voters in November 2000 decided in a contest between a fake family values guy and a real family values guy, and I'll take the real one. That's one of the reasons why W, the other one was that, you know, the tax, the um, surplus. Um, I, I think I, did I get a check? I think I got a check from the government in 2001. Anyway, um, I think that Macron will not be taken seriously as a um, center-right imitator. And um, so that migration is doomed to fail. Um but yeah more more to come there. We're definitely in uncharted waters around the world.
0: Yeah, there's France, there are the riots in Germany. Germany's under lockdown again. I mean, like who could have imagined that? You know, England is under lockdown again. Who could have imagined that? I mean, Italy is just Italy. It'll never change. I mean, here I have this high imperialist attitude mainly because If COVID proved anything, it it proved that your bureaucracies are unsustainable if they cannot deliver public goods.
1: That's 100% true.
0: So it's time to fire all the bureaucrats. Just fire all the bureaucrats. Just keep the guy who understands, you know, international monetary theory employed. And, you know, just start over. Because Europe's biggest fiasco, the biggest fiasco in Europe right now is that they were all in on the AstraZeneca vaccine that came out of england and oxford university and they've failed that there are only two genuine vaccines available the pfizer vaccine and the moderna vaccine made in america right and then the sputnik vaccine in russia too because the russians have really pulled off a coup internationally in that they've made their vaccine widely available throughout the world guess where they're using the the sputnik vaccine michael Africa and Mexico oh. you know I mean Europe has failed Europe has to figure out how to import the Pfizer vaccine the moderna vaccine and the Sputnik vaccine because their own vaccine is failed you know you got you, you you gotta buy it from it's like the amount of efficiencies in Empire are proven over and over again you know the Russians have a vaccine the Americans have a vaccine choose. All right. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Good talking with you as always. Take care. Bye.